Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Prospect Podcast. I'm Tom Clark, editor of Prospect Magazine, and this week I'll be talking to biographer Ray Monk about R.G. Collingwood and why his premature death may have changed the entire course of British philosophy in the 20th century. Ray is a philosopher himself based in Southampton, as well as, most famously, the chronicler of Ludwig Wittgenstein's life. We'll come to the conversation with Ray himself in a moment, but first I'm joined here in the studio by Prospect's own Alex Dean. Now, Alex, you've got to know Ray quite a bit in the last couple of years, haven't you? I certainly have. Um, he's done a few bits and pieces for us, uh, which always come in <laughs> sparkling. He's, he's, you know, incredible stylist. Um, I actually read his biography of Wittgenstein um kind of early in my months at Prospect because other editors here recommended it and said it was the best biography they've ever read. Um, and I have to say, I agree. And um, one of the things that I really like actually about having Ray write for us is that he's kind of using Prospect as the home for all those philosophical biographies that he never actually got down in book form. So we had um, Kurt Girdle, who kind of uh, straddles the philosophical mathematical boundary um Frager, who was a pioneer of analytic philosophy uh, and now he's done rg collingwood who's i have to say quite a different <laughs> quite a different sort of thinker but um certainly worth learning more about i mean i think his approach is quite unusual um it's often said i think that you need with these big intellectual figures to make sense um of the life in order to make sense of the ideas that's the way around people have done it but ray says that he thinks um, that you won't make sense of the ideas unless you've also taken the time to make sense of the life. I think it's that way around. Um, but you've got to be careful with these logicians. Um, and um, what I like about these pieces and working with Ray is one minute it's some quirky detail about, let's say, good or starving himself to death, as I think he ended up doing. And then the next, you're suddenly brought face to face with the kind of cold, hard logic of the theory itself. Yeah, and he, um, I mean, it can be really complicated to try and understand the ideas, but then Ray has this knack of kind of making them seem a lot simpler than they actually are. <laughs> and um, I mean, what you were saying about the uh, relationship between the life and the work is it's the way that the two, I mean, I don't know which, which direction I think the pollination happens in, if you see what, what I mean, but 
in the R.G. Collingwood piece, for example, Collingwood was a more eclectic man and thinker and philosopher, if you see what I mean. So he he was, um, as Ray explains, an expert violinist, whereas uh, Gilbert Ryle, a famous analytic philosopher who Ray contrasts him with, um, had no ear for tunes. So Collingwood is kind of uh, more culturally steeped. Um, and that, that shows up not just in the kind of bloke that he is, but in the kind of work that he does. Um, and of course, Ray's going to tell us an awful lot more about those two men and the, the contrast between them and why it changed philosophy. But just a bit more on Ray the man, if we can biographise him for a moment. Um, he does all this kind of difficult philosophy stuff, as well as the, 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 um, the great man lives stuff. But um, what about his um, interest in political activism and so on? Because half the time he writes for us, it's not about philosophy at all, is it? Well, I mean, it is political. And uh, more than anything, it's, it's vegan activism and environmental activism. Um, so he's a recent convert to veganism um, and has become extremely passionate about it and extremely well-informed, as you'd expect. Um, and, I mean, I was emailing him back and forth the other day and he took, uh, you know, not an especially long time, but slightly longer than usual to reply. Um, and then when he came back to me, he said, sorry, um, have been busy with XR stuff, obviously meaning ex- Extinction Rebellion. And he's openly, you know, supporting all, all they're doing. So it's kind of a um, a total different string to his bow um, over the last few years. But he's writing fantastic stuff for us on that as well. OK, thanks a lot, um, Alex. And so now on to that main event where I'm going to have a chat with Ray Monk himself about RG Collins. Welcome, Ray, and let's dive straight into the remarkable story you told in Prospect about how one early death fed into the great chasm in philosophy between so-called continental and so-called Anglo-Saxon or analytic philosophy. I guess the first question before we get into any of that is, can you just tell listeners what what those two schools really are all about? What's the difference between them? Yes, but Bernard Williams once said that it was a very odd uh, way of dividing philosophers, um, because on the one hand you have a, a a group of philosophers who are characterized by where they live and work, and on the other hand, character uh, a group of philosophers characterized by their style of philosophy. And he said it's a bit like dividing cars between uh, four-wheel drive models and models made in Japan. <laughs> so yeah. it's a it's a very curious distinction, but it has it 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 has had a wide influence uh, and it, it plays out even now in philosophy departments in particularly the English-speaking world. Continental philosophy is a term that describes a very wide range of philosophers and this includes, it goes back to the phenomenology of Edmund Husserl. But the phenomenology of Edmund Husserl influenced many, many schools of philosophy including existentialism for example, structuralism, post-structuralism, the uh, deconstructionism of Derrida. So mainly we're talking about French and German philosophers who in some way or other um, owe something to the phenomenology of Edmund Husserl. Michael Dummett, the great Oxford philosopher, once wrote a book about the history of analytic philosophy. And he said that the two schools of analytic and continental philosophy were like the Rhine and the Danube, in the sense that their origins are very close to each other, but they flow into different seas. And so the 
If Husserl is the grandfather of the continental tradition, the grandfather of the analytic tradition is Frege. And Frege and Husserl lived and worked in the same milieu. They, they corresponded with each other. They both wrote on the philosophy of mathematics. But Frege's work gave rise to a tradition of philosophy that emphasizes logic, the philosophy of mathematics, the philosophy of language. And from Frege, you go to Russell. From Russell, you go to Wittgenstein. And then to the analytic philosophers of Oxford and Cambridge of the mid and late 20th century. Their areas are much more narrowly defined than those of continental philosophy. Continental philosophy takes in literature, history, social science. Analytic philosophy tends to concentrate, as I said, on logic, language and mathematics. So, I mean, I, uh, listening to you, I'm sort of thinking, and of course this is an appalling journalistic caricature, but sort of meaning of life versus meaning of language? Something like that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and was the divide, um, you know, in the interest of schematising, I guess, people do kind of set up these divides. But if you think about what a student would actually learn in a university in the Sorbonne or in London somewhere, would it really have been very different? Would very different, yes. For example, most philosophy departments on the continent, if you did philosophy there, you would expect to study Marx. Right. There is hardly a philosophy department in the UK in which Marx is part of the syllabus. Okay, that gives us an idea. So it's it's quite a big and real um, uh, distinction, um, at least in the practice of philosophy, yeah. even if their origins up in the hills somewhere uh, <laughs> are uh, linked. Um, and in your piece for Prospect, you put some of the blame, or quite a lot of the blame, on one man, Gilbert Ryle. Gilbert Ryle, pe- people outside philosophy, outside British philosophy, don't appreciate the influence, the control almost, one could say, that Gilbert Ryle exerted over British philosophy. For one thing, British philosophy is more monolithic, I would say, than almost every any other uh, country in the world, in the sense that when we talk about British philosophy, we're really talking about Oxford philosophy. The Oxford philosophy sub-faculty as it used to be and and faculty as it now is, is by a long way the biggest philosophy department in the country. Nothing else comes close. And it, it, it always has been. And Oxford philosophy, particularly since the 1950s, has dominated the subject in this country. So that when the new universities were opening in the 50s and 60s, the people they got to staff the philosophy department were people who'd studied under Ryle at Oxford. And so Ryle edited mind he was uh, he was president of the aristotelian society he was the leading uh, philosopher in oxford and therefore the leading philosophy philosopher in the country and he set up this qualification called the b phil and almost every philosopher who then went to teach philosophy in a british university had studied the b phil under gilbert ryle so his his influence was enormous and he temperamentally you think rather brittle character and maybe drawn to this dare I say desiccated mode of uh, philosophizing yes in in some ways he was a a rather narrow person himself Uh, he had very little interest in the arts he was completely unmusical Uh, he was he was a self-proclaimed philistine and um, and that showed itself in all sorts of ways. He had very little interest in literature. Um, when people asked him if he read novels, he said, oh, yes, I've read all six. Uh, <laughs> because he didn't think anybody had written any novels apart from Jane Austen. Uh, so he, he used to read Jane Austen's novels every year, and that was the only literature 
he admitted to to having read. So he was something of a Philistine, um, but he was he was a very uh, brilliant man, of course, and and he was uh, uh, rightly regarded as a as a brilliant philosopher. With regard to the continental tradition, Ryle occupies a strangely ambivalent position because before the war, before the Second World War. Ryle was actually instrumental in introducing Oxford philosophers to continental philosophers, including Husserl um, and Heidegger. Uh, he wrote a, a long review of Heidegger's being and time. Um, he gave a series of lectures in which he introduced uh, Oxford undergraduates to continental philosophers. But then, after the war, his tone and his attitude changed, and he would give voice to stridently anti-continental opinions. Um, and he, there was a conference at Royaumont in, in, in France that was designed to bring Oxford philosophers together with French phenomenologists. And Ryle gave a very provocative uh, uh, paper there uh, called Phenomenology Versus the Concept of Mind, in which he set up what he called Anglo-Saxon philosophy in opposition to the continental philosophy influenced by phenomenology. Because the concept of mind is his book, so that versus yeah. means business in a way. It, yeah, the concept of mind is his book, and the, the title Phenomenology versus the Concept of Mind can really re be read as continental philosophers versus Oxford philosophers. And you, you reference in the piece he kind of stands up with these um, continentals and makes a number of gags, if you can call them that, about Führers and this kind of thing. And yes. More or less <laughs> guarantees that these and people this, aren't going to get on with him anymore. This is in the 50s, barely 10 years after the war, and he's making jokes about Husserl being a Führer and uh, uh, continental philosophers looking for their Führer and Oxford philosophers uh, being free from this Führer worship. It, it, was, it was outrageous. So you've got this man, this rather closed man, in this position of extraordinary power uh, to close down uh, and uh, British philosophy, remake it in his own Im image, and lo and behold, he does, but... The real point of your piece is to say it might all have been very different. Yes, because his predecessor as Waynefleet Professor of Metaphysics at Oxford was Robin George Collingwood, who was a, uh, a very different philosopher, very different man. Collingwood came from a very cultured background. Uh, his, his parents were deeply interested in all the arts, particularly painting. His mother was a very gifted musician. He himself was such a gifted musician that for, for a while, a career as a, a violinist was a distinct possibility. Um, he had very wide-ranging interests in, in, in literature. And his philosophy was reflected that breadth of interest and indeed, alongside his career as a philosopher, he maintained a career as a historian and archaeologist. He was, uh, he was the leading authority on Roman Britain during his lifetime. So a man of many parts, I think you said um, him and his family had inspired Swallows and Amazons, yes. just to give a, a, yes. a flavour of the breadth. Um, but he didn't duck out of the hard-edged analytic philosophy, did he? You had this business about presuppositions if I've got the word right yes which he he regarded I think rightly as a challenge to conventional logic 
And one thing that interests me as, as somebody steeped in Wittgenstein's work is how Wittgenstein's challenge to orthodox logic in some ways echoes Collingwood's. So in orthodox logic, you, you have this idea that what you do in logic is you, you study which propositions follow from other propositions. You, you, you study inference. You study valid argument forms. Collingwood, like Wittgenstein, emphasized that in life, we don't use these abstract forms. Rather, every proposition, so-called, is embedded in a context. And Wittgenstein called this, this, this concept the, the stream of life. Collingwood calls this, this, this context the, the collection of presuppositions. So if, if, if I say to you, where's my hat? There is a, a context for that. And, and one of the presuppositions, as Collingwood would say, underpinning that question, where is my hat, is that I have a hat. Mm. And, and so um, in all walks of life and in all intellectual uh, activities like, like, uh, and, and all artistic activities, there are a set of presuppositions. And, and, and Collingwood was interested in this with regard to the notion of understanding. So we cannot understand another culture, another epoch, without making a serious attempt to understand the web of presuppositions that inform their culture and their, their life. And on an individual level, part of what's involved in my understanding you is understanding what presuppositions guide your thinking and your life. And so if I say to you, Ray, um, where's my space shuttle? You know, we don't know each other enormously well, but you know me well enough probably to know that I don't have a space shuttle. And it's a sort of joke <laughs> right right and, and you know and yes. so does that mean that the, the, the kind of philosophy you might do like if you were trying to boil down a sentence like that if it was all boiling it down into the nuts and bolts of the sentence it wouldn't get you very far exactly the context was a playful exactly. one yes a yes one. so uh, i mean in one way the the so the, the 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 idea motivating collingwood is don't look at individual propositions in isolation from one another try and see the whole try and see the whole person try and see the whole culture try and see the whole epoch you should celebrate yourself every day but some days you should celebrate with jewelry whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection blue nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And in a slightly less um, frivolous example, if we were trying to make sense of what someone who is very religious was saying, exactly. um, how, how would that work? If you're yes. Ryle on the one hand versus Collingwood on the other. Yes, or, 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 or take the people who are called the new atheists, whose concern is to say that... So this is the, Richard Dawkins or whatever. Yeah, whose concern is to say, look, this, this religious proposition is false. You're not going to get very far in understanding Christians or Buddhists or Hindus if your concern is simply to take an isolated proposition and investigate its truth or falsehood and simply to say, look, when you say, you know... Uh, when you say Christ rose on the third day, that is a false proposition. You have to look at it in the context and what, you have to see what it means for people. Uh, you know, and, and similarly with, with, with statements in, in Hinduism about uh, Ganesh or, 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 or Krishna or whatever. Look at, look at what is believed in its context and look at the role that those religious practices play in a person's life and then you will begin to understand that religion and those people so ray i think that's very helpful because you can see how that might have applied in terms of the more literary sort of existentialism or whatever those other types of continental uh philosophies are and, and why collingwood might have been able to deal with it and ryle might have been left with a do not compute but it was by accident of Collingwood's early death, Ryle, who got the chance, and not Collingwood, to reshape philosophy in his own image for a number of years. And that is true, isn't it, through the 70s, 80s, it 90s? It is, and, and, well, and, and, and critically perhaps the 60s, because we're talking at a of a time when university education in Britain has, has grown enormously, and therefore the number of philosophers working in Britain has grown enormously. So Ryle's ascendancy happened at a crucial time for the development of academic life and, and, and the development of philosophy in this country. And so we end up with more people passing through this BPhil degree yeah. and, and, and then having this rather dry as dust idea of what philosophy is. How far is that still true it's, now? It's, it's broken down. So philosophy in Britain has become much wider in the last 20 years uh, than it was when I, you know, I, I, I was a, an undergraduate student in the 70s, a postgraduate student in the 80s, and philosophy in British uh, universities was still very narrow. Since I would say the mid 80s, it has become wider and wider. So uh, there's a lot more interest now in uh, previously neglected continental philosophers. There's much more interest in Nietzsche, for example, now than there, that there was. When I was a graduate student, uh, my supervisor was the famous Sir Peter Strawson, who was a very good philosopher, but very much part of the uh, analytic tradition. And when I got interested in Nietzsche, Strawson told me, well, Nietzsche's not a philosopher. <laughs> Nietzsche's a literary figure, he said. <laughs> um, that attitude has, has, has been broken down. 
and uh, and also parts of the subject that were previously neglected have have now been revived uh, ethics aesthetics the history of philosophy all these things that analytic philosophers thought were you know not very interesting and the preserve of the mediocre and the second rate uh, th- those those subjects are now bl- blossoming so we might say that um uh, RG Collingwood's had the last laugh, if you like. But I, in, 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 in at least two ways. One is that his spirit is closer to the spirit that now animates uh, British philosophy. And two, he himself is undergoing a revival. Uh, more people are studying Collingwood. There are more papers published on Collingwood's philosophy. Collingwood's philosophy is now influencing aesthetics, the philosophy of history, and so on. He's getting his just desserts. Um. You mentioned already one of your um, uh, biographical subjects, Ludwig Wittgenstein, with the uh, comparison with Collingwood. I'd like to ask you now about another one, which is Bertrand Russell, of whom you wrote a a two-volume biography. Uh, um, And as a um, once retired from academic life, I think he really threw himself into the campaign for nuclear disarmament, I think. And also... um in a more radical way, the Committee of 100. So he, he formed the Committee of 100 because he was dissatisfied with the uh, campaign for nuclear disarmament because they weren't radical enough. So he formed the Committee of 100 to do what Extinction Rebellion are doing now, uh, to promote civil disobedience. And that's exactly what I wanted to ask you about because you're here recording the Prospect podcast fresh from Extinction um, Rebellion. Um, and when you think about what you're up to now, what Russell was up to um, uh, after he got out of academic philosophy. Um, what are your thoughts about the role of the philosopher now in public life, if we've got off this kind of dry-as-dust language and logic stuff being the be-all and end-all? Does that mean that we can look forward to philosophers being more engaged? Yes, I think it does. Uh, and it, it, it's, it's rather nice that you should bring, it round to the, bring the discussion around to this because uh, it, 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 it completes the circle for me in that I first became interested in philosophy through Bertrand Russell. And my introduction to Russell was, as a small boy, seeing him on the telly and being enormously impressed by this man in his 90s with his shock of white hair sitting on the pavement in Whitehall. And I've just been to Whitehall just now. And uh, he was encouraging civil disobedience in Whitehall. A BBC reporter came up to him and said, Lord Russell, why are you doing this? And Russell had this possibly old-fashioned voice he sounded like somebody from the 18th century and he said well if the policies of the present government are continued they will inevitably result in the destruction of the entire human race he said and some of us think that might be rather a pity (laughs) and the (laughs) the clarity and the rationality of that i found inspiring Mm. and i don't think it's irrelevant that he is a philosopher he's a philosopher whose concern is Uh, for clarity of thinking and because he's bringing that clarity of thinking to political questions of enormous import in his day it was nuclear warfare today it's climate change but the same thing we're talking quite literally about the survival or otherwise of the human race and in fact now I think all life on earth and so I think it behoves philosophers to get involved to bring their clarity out of the lecture room and onto the streets 
And I personally know a number of philosophers who are engaged in Extinction Rebellion and who are doing just that. That's fascinating to hear. I mean, I know that you follow this stuff closely. I know that you've become vegan out of concern, I think, for yeah. the climate. But yeah. I, I was thinking you were a one-off. You're saying no, there's, th- th- this no, is happening. No, I, I mean, one of, so I, I've been giving uh, lectures in support of Extinction Rebellion in my hometown of Southampton. A colleague of mine has been doing the same thing. I know people in other philosophy departments who are on the street now. <laughs> um, no, I mean, uh, it's, and again, it's so different from British philosophy departments of the 1980s. I, I'm, Michael Dummett actually was a political activist. He was active in the campaign against apartheid and, and, and uh, generally uh, against racism and so on. But by and large, philosophers were not activists. Um, but it's not, uh, not at all unusual now in philosophy departments in British universities to find people who are actively involved in Extinction Rebellion, in promoting veganism uh, and opposing uh, ecological damage. Fantastic. Ray, thank you very much indeed. And that's it for this week. Thank you very much for listening to our interview with Ray Monk. You can read his feature on RG Collingwood on the Prospect website. Um, I can also tell you we are in talks with him about doing another piece on another philosopher, but you're going to have to watch this space if you want to find out who that is. Rebecca Liu is our producer. And if you enjoyed the Prospect podcast, please do leave us a rating and review, which does help. We'll see you next week. Thanks a lot and goodbye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.